0: The title for today's message is uh, Noah's Sins and Noah's Sons. Noah's Sins and Noah's Sons. I remember in grade 10 English class, uh, the teacher was passing out the, the textbook of what we were going to be a reading, and it was William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I flipped open uh, Macbeth, and uh, it had the, the cast of characters there, and, uh, and it indicated uh, King Duncan. I said, I'm going to like this play. That sounds just about right to me, King Duncan. And uh, then I read like two pages in where King Duncan is promptly murdered. Uh, murdered by Macbeth. Uh, and then uh, later on in, uh, in university, uh, I, I minored uh, in English. And uh, so I took a course in, in, in Shakespeare and I passed because of the man there on the left. Now some of you know this man as a Gilderoy Lockhart from Harry Potter. Uh, this is Kenneth Branagh. Uh, before Harry Potter, he, he's most well-known for being a brilliant Shakespearean actor and director. Kenneth Branagh is the reason why I passed University Shakespeare, uh, because I just watched all of his, uh, all of his brilliant uh, movies. And uh, I, I loved watching Kenneth Branagh play the character of... Uh, Macbeth. Now, there's a whole other generation that when you were cramming to try to learn about Shakespeare, um, you watched Patrick Stewart uh, play Macbeth. And then uh, even more recently in the last couple of years, Denzel Washington has actually played Macbeth. It's the same role, but different actors. You know, like Superman is played sometimes by different Actors, or, or, or Spider-Man, yes, people have different preferences, or, or Batman, not quite on the level of Macbeth, I'm, I'm going to just be straightforward, but different actors playing the same role. As we've been looking at the flood story and everything that happens after the flood story, we, we've noticed that the setting is kind of being reset, Sort of like on, a, on the stage at a play where different pieces of the, of the set are being moved around. As we come to Genesis 7 and 8 and 9, we see that the, the same pieces are being put in place. We've noticed some, a lot of these themes about creation, decreation, and recreation. There's reference to the deep And the water covering the earth, the spirit of God or the wind of God hovering over the earth, the dry land appearing, the classification of of animals, the breath of life, the command to be fruitful and multiply. It's, It's like we're going back to Genesis 1. Not only that, we see that Noah is a different actor, but he's playing the same role. He's also blessed by God like Adam was. He's also re- referred to as bearing the image of God like Adam was. He's commanded to be fruitful and multiply like Adam was. He walked with God like Adam did, and he had three sons like Adam did. Same role, different actor. Noah's kind of like a, like a second Adam, as we notice here in Genesis chapter 9. Now I, I gotta warn you as we get into this passage, this is a weird one, okay? So it begins with narrative, which is which is sometimes hard to understand, particularly Old Testament narrative. It begins with it. But, but the, what happens is kind of odd, and there isn't a lot of detail, so that's challenging. Then we have prophecy about cursing and blessing and nations serving one another and dwelling in one another's tents. And then we're going to wrap it all up with a 70-name genealogy. How about that? So I just got to warn you, today's going to be a little bit a little bit weird, but this is why we are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God, preaching through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and line by line. So we're going to attack this story sort of in three major chunks. Here's the first one, uncovering and covering, uncovering and covering. Chapter 9, verse 18 says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it says there in parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, why do we get that extra little detail about Ham, that he was the father of Canaan? We got to think about this from the perspective of the original audience. The original audience, these are the rescued Hebrew slaves. They have been set free from Egypt, and they're on their way to where? Canaan, the promised land. And we're introduced to this character Ham in the story. And we're told, keep your eye on him because he's the father of Canaan. Verse 19 says, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. If you're a person living on planet earth, dispersed across this planet, you are living on this planet because you actually descend from one of these three sons. This is an important story because it's tracking the the lineage of every nation and culture and ethnicity and language group. We all came from this one family, from these three brothers. And then we're told about Noah. This is not a good look for Noah. You can't really filter this. You can't really airbrush this uh, in any way. Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Get that image out of your mind, okay? This is, this is not a good look for Noah. But what do we see here? Same character, different actor. Noah's given this new creation and this new mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Same character, Different actor. Not only did Noah have, you know, blessed by God, image of God, fruitful and multiply, walked with God and three sons, but he's also described as a worker of the soil. The Hebrew there is a worker of Adama. Adam means soil. He was a worker of the soil. Adam tended a garden. Noah tends a vineyard. Adam sinned by consuming fruit. Noah sinned by consuming fruit. It was just fermented before he consumed it. And just like Adam was naked and filled with shame, here is Noah who was naked and filled with shame. Same character, different actor. Noah's playing his role, unfortunately, he's playing his role exactly the way the person before him played it. So what exactly was Noah's sin here? Was it the fact that he planted a vineyard? Was it the fact that he consumed alcohol? Or was it the fact that he got so drunk that he, he lay naked in his tent uncovered and had to awaken out of his wine, as the text tells us in verse 24? Is drinking alcohol a sin? Many people would say that it is. What would the original audience think when they're learning about this story of Noah? How would they be filtering? Where did Noah sin? Was it in the consumption of alcohol or was it in the excessive drunkenness or the drunkenness at all? Well, the original audience would have known what, what, what Moses also wrote to them in the book of Numbers, that you shall offer the burnt offering for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. So. Wine was something that you could offer to God in worship, so it, it can't be considered, you know, an unclean thing if if it could be offered to the Lord in worship. Secondly, God tells, he commands his people to feast in Deuteronomy. He says, you know, put all your money on a bank card and and go go to the city of Jerusalem to worship there. And he says, buy an ox, buy sheep. He says, buy wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice so The consumption of alcohol was was part of rejoicing, part of worship, part of celebrating the many feasts that the people of Israel were commanded to observe. Then, in Psalm 104, in verse 1... Psalm 104 is this great list of things that we can praise God for and be thankful for. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. So the consumption of alcohol is, is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus was actually concerned of being a glutton and a drunkard in Matthew 11. So the act of consuming alcohol is not a sin as long as it is in moderation, as long as someone is in control of themselves. But the Bible also warns us, although it thanks God for wine and it talks about how wine can be used in a time of rejoicing and how it can be used in worship, the Bible also gives us many warnings, like this warning in Proverbs 22. It says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? He says, Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. It, it, it allures, it draws you in, it's sparkling, it goes down smoothly. It says in the end, it bites like a serpent. And then we're told in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit The consumption of alcohol is not a sin, drunkenness is a sin. We are to be self-controlled. We are to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with the control of of alcohol or any other substance. Noah's sin was drunkenness. He he lay there naked and ashamed. You see, creation was made new, but Noah wasn't. Here's what happened as a result of the flood. Uh, you got one righteous man who lives, all the unrighteous people die, and creation is made new. And, and th- this is why the, what happens in the flood is different from what happened at the cross, which we just sang about. Because at the cross, it's not one righteous man who lives, it's the one righteous man who dies. And it's not, that all, it's not that all unrighteous people die, which we all deserve. Jesus died, the righteous man died, so that all unrighteous people may live who place their faith in him. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it's not that he made creation new, he made you and me new. Those who place their faith in him are, are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. So Noah was a man of faith. Noah found favor with God. Noah was described as blameless in Genesis uh, 6 and Genesis 7. Noah is is described as a model in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet Noah sinned in this spectacular way. And as, as you follow through the story of the Bible, same character, different actor, we see Wonderful men of God, women of God, courageous people, faith filled people, loving people who sin in a way that is so shameful and that is so wicked. And even as we look through church history, and even as we look in our own lives, We can often be confused about how, even if someone is made new and filled with the spirit, loved ones, we all have the capacity to sin. And we all have the capacity to do heinous sin and sin that brings shame on us and upon our family. Don't be thinking, you know, oh, same role, different actor that was then, but that would never, no, it could be you. And maybe it is you. I know for sure it's me. I've played this role before. I've been the actor in this play. I've done the Noah thing. I've received nothing but abundance and blessing from the Lord and I've found a way to mess the whole thing up and bring shame on myself. Am I all alone? Same role, different actor. We're all like Adam. We're all like Noah. Now, some of us may not have sinned in any sort of spectacularly shameful way. But the way that we sin so often is how we respond when others sin. And that's the story of Ham. Noah was the one who messed. Noah was the one who got drunk. Noah was the one lying in the tent naked. Ham didn't do any of that. But there was something about the way that Ham responded to the shameful activity of his father that brought a curse on his life. We're told in verse 22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan. There it is again. We're introduced to him in verse 18. Ham, the father of Canaan. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan. Original audience, are you listening? The people that you're the, the, the people who inhabit the promised land right now, the Canaanites, they came from this guy, Ham, the father of Canaan. Says that he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now I'm not going to speculate on what scripture doesn't describe. Scripture doesn't give us any details other than he saw the nakedness and he went and he told his brothers. And what was so wrong about what Ham did? Well, the the only way that we can really understand what was wrong with what Ham did is if we look at what his brothers did. Look at what Shem and Japheth did in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. They covered Noah's shame. They didn't look on Noah's shame. They didn't go and gather uh, more people and tell them about Noah's shame. They covered it. How do you respond when someone else sins? Do you want to go and tell someone else about it? Do you want to make someone who's already feeling ashamed of what they've done feel even more ashamed by being passive-aggressive or just flat-out aggressive with them? How do you respond? How would the original audience have understood what Ham had done here? Again, we're not given the details, and I'm not going to speculate on what actually happened. But we know fundamentally here that Ham broke the fifth commandment that the original audience would have heard thundering down from Mount Sinai. Remember the first four commandments are about following God and honoring God and then the last six are about how we relate to our neighbor and it begins with the most important relationship to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Children, Julius and Alex, when you grow up, honor your parents. Teenagers, honor your parents. It's a command from God's word. Ham did not honor Noah, but he disgraced him. Noah did a disgraceful thing. Noah did a shameful thing. But that does not give you license to dishonor someone. We don't have license to dishonor someone just because they act dishonorably, particularly our parents. We should, as it says in Romans, we should outdo one another in showing. Honor. If we love one another, then we know that love covers a multitude of sin, not enabling sin, not excusing sin, or, 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 or acting like it didn't happen, but being careful, being prudent, being wise, being cautious, being sensitive, not airing it out. Look at this command, the second part of it, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What land are they, is being given to them? The land of Canaan, the son of Ham, who did not honor his father. Why is it so important that children honor their parents? And this isn't just for little toddlers or for teenagers. This is for, like, I mean, Ham was a grown up. Ham already had a son named Canaan. So even if our parents behave in a dishonorable way, there is still a way that we can deal with the sins of our parents or the failures of our parents or the shortcomings of our parents in a way that still honors them. This is something that, I mean, we got a variety of cultural backgrounds uh, represented here, where honor and shame and respect for parents and grandparents is, is sort of woven into the fabric. My upbringing, my cultural background, there was no emphasis on that. Everything in popular culture, everything in the academy, everything in the way, was to dishonor your parents. But this is what we are called to do because parents are God given authority figures in our lives. And if we mistreat our parents, it shows not just that there's something wrong with us and mom and dad, it shows that there's something wrong with us and the Lord. And parents are not the only God-given authority. Police officers are a God-given authority. Politicians are a God-given authority. Our, our teachers are a God-given authority. Pastors and elders are a God-given authority. And when we dishonor or disrespect, Those authority, again, those authority figures, none of them are perfect. All of them are very capable of acting in shameful ways. But there is a way in which we are supposed to honor the people who are put in those positions of authority in us. As a way, ultimately, of honoring the Lord. Ham missed that. And we should not miss that as well. So it begins with the story of uncovering and... Covering. Then, uh, the next part of the story I have under the heading, cursing and blessing. Cursing and blessing. He says in verse 25, cursed be Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses Canaan. We don't know why, but he, he skips over Ham and zeroes in on one of Ham's uh, children. Cursed be Canaan. He says, a servant of servants shall he be to his brother's. He also said, verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So he places this curse on Canaan. In the curse on Canaan, he mentions that Canaan will be a servant. And then when he's blessing Shem and Japheth, he also mentions each time that that. Canaan is going to serve Shem and Japheth. Now, again, if we're going to understand the passage for our day, we first have to step into the shoes of the original audience. Now, the original audience would have understood that these blessings and this curse would have set the general trajectory for the cultures, and the societies that, would, be, that would, would flow through the family tree of these three sons. But the original audience would also know that those trajectories, those branches of the family tree, aren't fixed. It's, it's not that everyone who's a descendant of this particular person is under a curse, and that everyone who's under uh, this particular branch is under a blessing. Because the original audience, we're told, in Exodus 12, verse 38, we're told that the the people who were rescued from Egypt were not exclusively Hebrew slaves. Exodus 12, 38 says that they were a mixed multitude. Yeah, there were descendants of Shem. They were the Hebrews. There was also descendants, probably, of Japheth. And there were definitely descendants of Ham, who were a part of that, who were a mixed multitude. Also, the, the, the people of Israel would have learned very quickly if they haven't, hadn't learned already that Rahab, clearly a Canaanite, clearly would, would her trajectory, her branch of the tree would have been one of cursed, but she is blessed. She is, is, is saved. Why? Not because of her family lineage, but because of her faith. That's in Joshua chapter 2. And then in Joshua chapter 7, we learn about a descendant of Shem, a Hebrew, whose name is Achan. And he, even though he is in the right branch of the family tree, he is actually cursed. And so these destinies aren't fixed. That, that faith can actually break whatever cultural trajectory you happen to be on. But nonetheless, we have this cursing and this blessing Now, I want to say something about this curse of Canaan because while William Wilberforce was using the Bible to completely dismantle the the rationale for the transatlantic slave trade in the 1800s, there were Christians in North America who were trying to use the Bible to keep it going. And they took the curse on Canaan and had it move up a generation and put it on a curse of Cain. Sorry, sorry, a curse of of Ham. And so you had statements uh, like this. This is a statement from Patrick Mell, who was uh, a president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention in the 1800s. He said, from Ham were descended the nations that occupied the land of Canaan and those that now constitute the African race. This is a Christian Or someone who claims to be a Christian writing this. He says their inheritance, according to prophecy, has been and will continue to be slavery. So long as we have the Bible, we expect to maintain it. The trouble with with this logic is that the curse is on Canaan and not on Ham. Ham. The curse didn't apply to Egypt and Cush and the other sons of Ham. It only applied to Canaan. Canaan didn't settle in Africa. Canaan settled in Canaan. And also, because Canaan settled in Canaan, that curse, really, for all intents and purposes, was clearly fulfilled in the book of Joshua, when Canaan was totally destroyed. And where, because the, the giving of the promised land was not just an act of rescue and blessing for the people of Israel, but it was an act of judgment on the descendants of Canaan. The, the, this line of thinking also misses the fact that capturing people and enslaving them is clearly... Uh, it is clearly commanded against in Exodus chapter 21 in the Old Testament and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So the whole transatlantic slave trade, you just need one verse to say this is wrong. It was clearly wrong. Furthermore, even if you didn't have any of that, Jesus, according to the book of Galatians, became a curse for us. So even if there was a curse, it's lifted. <laughs> it's not that Jesus, you know, what... Only, only set us free from one or two cur- No, every curse. Is there any curse on anyone? Jesus has the power to destroy that curse. I love how Garrett Kell uh, describes uh, this false teaching that you know, was up in the church in the 1800s. He says, the curse of Ham is a form of the prosperity gospel that provides theological justification for pride, greed, racism, and partiality loving their sin, its proponents raise the volume on their Genesis 9:20 20 to 27 interpretation while muting texts condemning man stealing in Exodus 21:16 and 1 Timothy 1:10 1, and commanding love for neighbor. Now, I want you to hear what Garrett Kell says next because it's easy for us to say, I can't believe that any Christian could ever believe that. I I can't believe that the just be careful. He says, hopefully you despise this error, and we should. But he asked the question, but where are you temptable? Are there sins that you wish God affirmed? Beware. Satan has a doctrine for you. Is there a political philosophy that resonates with you? Beware. Satan has a doctrine for you. Do you live in poverty and long to be prosperous? Beware. Satan has a doctrine for you. If the curse of Ham teaches us anything, it's that we must remain humbly tethered to Scripture in the context of a godly community. The people who are benefiting from the slave trade went to the Bible to try to find a reason to to keep it going. And so often we as Christians, as believers, can try to go to the Bible to try to, to, try to make us feel okay about whatever is happening or whatever we're, whatever we're doing or whatever we're thinking. We gotta stay tethered to Scripture. Scripture tells us what to do. We don't go to Scripture to find justification for what we want to do. Someone started to clap. That's worth clapping for. Yeah, Amen. Amen. We're not clapping for a man who said something. We're clapping b- about the truth that we got to stay tethered to, uh, to Scripture. So number, uh, number one, uncovering and covering. Number two, cursing and blessing. And then number three, uh, dispersing and dividing. Some of you are looking at Genesis chapter 10 and you're saying, are we going to do this? I'm like, yeah, we are going to do this. Our small groups have been studying um, the book of Genesis together. <laughs> And uh, I hope you didn't, I, I hope the small groups didn't ask like one member, okay, uh, 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 Nathan, can you please read Genesis 1 to 32? Can you read 70 hard-to-pronounce uh, names from, uh, from around the world? <laughs> Chapter 10, I'm going to do it, but, uh, and I don't know how to, pro- I'm just going to be honest, I don't know how to pronounce these names. I'm just going to say it with authority, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were sons born to them after the flood. That phrase, these are the generations, should catch our attention. Remember the book of Genesis in English is divided into 50 chapters, but the original was divided into 10 chapters with this phrase, these are the generations of heaven and earth. And then Adam and Noah, and now we're in the sons of Noah. This is the fourth Toledot, or the fourth chapter. I also want to point out that these genealogies work according to a certain formula. And so I'll show you this here on the screen. It starts with the sons of, and then you insert Ham or Japheth or Canaan. Then you got a lot of names. And then the signal that the section is ending is that you have a reference to lands, languages, clans, and, uh, and nations. Okay, so let's start with Japheth, verse two. These are the sons of Japheth. I don't even know how to say Japheth. Is it Japheth or Japheth? I'm not off to a good start. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiraz, The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togama. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodamim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. Okay, so this is, a, this is the, the family tree of Japheth. Every other genealogy that we've looked at so far has been linear. Father, son, father, son, father, son, father, son. This genealogy is so complicated because it's like father, son, 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 brothers, nephews, uncles, grandfathers, and some geography. It's genealogy and geography. It's, it's really messed up. And so I'm just using these. It's not messed up. It's the inspired word of God. It's hard to understand. And so the, I just took some photos of uh, some family trees from the... Um, from one of the commentaries that was that was really helpful. So these are the descendants of Japheth: seven sons. Uh, Gomer has three sons, so there's three grandsons of, of Gomer, and then Javan four sons, uh, which are uh, Japheth's four uh, grandsons. So you got seven grandsons in total, four uh, seven sons, fourteen names um, constituting fourteen. Nations. And then there's some, some places that are mentioned as well. So here's, if you, if you were to plot them on a, on a map, this is where uh, the descendants of Japheth inhabited. So places like Greece and uh, Iran and Armenia and Spain and Europe. And, and so that, those are the descendants of uh, Japheth. Also, that H3TC, that is not a descendant of Japheth. That's, that's one of your descendants in Hope Kids. <laughs> So you were given a sticker that looks something like this with a code on it, and so if you see uh, that, uh, if, if that's your, there you go, I mean, we found them, good, all right. Okay, so we've looked at the map, now we're going to Ham, the sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdeca, the sons of Rama: Sheba, Dadan, Cush, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of, the, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From the... From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ladim and Ananim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pashurim, Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvadites and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Adama and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their, here it is, their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. That's the signal that that section Uh, is done so these are the descendants of uh, ham Uh, in a a family tree you got four sons 24 grandsons two great-grandchildren 30 nations descend from ham the most the biggest family what was a sign of blessing In Old Testament times, a big family, lots of kids, lots of grandkids. Wait, isn't this Ham? Isn't this the one who messed up? Look at Canaan. Look at all those kids. What's going on here? And then you read about Nimrod and you think, okay, this is the only biographical special. Why doesn't it say that Nimrod is such a great slave? He's a mighty warrior. Building cities and establishing. What's going on here? Like we saw in Genesis chapter 5, with the genealogy of Cain, there's a lesson here in this genealogy, it often seems like evil is winning. The descendants of Canaan will ultimately become servants of the descendants of Shem when the people of Israel inhabit the promised land, but not, not right away, not actually not for several centuries of dominance in this area by these particular uh, people. The, the, this is the, the geographical sketch of where they, uh, where they spread out. So you've got the land of Canaan, Philistia, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, into uh, Africa and Arabia, Babel, uh, Nineveh. You can also notice, like when you were looking at this passage, did you notice, let's go to the next slide. This is like a who's who of all Israel's enemies. <laughs> Egypt, Babel, Assyria, <laughs> Philistines, Canaan, and then all the Jebusites and all the ites, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, sort of like that that whole curse thing. Uh, also that that whole dishonoring your parents thing. Look at look at what Moses wrote to the people of Israel in Leviticus chapter 18. Look at the connection he makes between two sons of Cain, two sons of Ham. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do in the land, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Don't act like the people who lived in the place where you've been set free from, and don't act like the people who live in the place where you're going. Be set apart. He connects them. And what does he say next? None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. Does that ring a bell? Egypt and Canaan are descendants of Ham, who saw his father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. And if you read Leviticus chapter 18, it begins with uncovering the nakedness of your father. And then it describes an encyclopedia of sexual perversion. Right through Leviticus chapter 18, climaxing with bestiality and then child sacrifice. If anyone thinks, oh, those poor Canaanites, they're just living peacefully before, but you know, Jericho, the walls came down. That was a place where people were having sexual relations with animals and family members and were killing their babies. It was an act of rescue and provision for the people of Israel, but simultaneously an act of judgment on the descendants of Israel. Of Canaan. Then we come to the descendants of Shem in verse 21. Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. We'll stop right there on on the name uh, uh, Eber. That's where Eber Hebrew the the Hebrews most likely that 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 term that that title came from the name Eber the Hebrews. Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shela, Shela fathered Eber, and to Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleft, Hazamareth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal Abmael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, and here's all those words again, their nations, and from the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood Verse 31 says these were the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, and their uh, and their lands and their nations. So these are the the sons of Shem. I already mentioned uh, Eber there, uh, Peleg. It says that. Uh, he lived when the, when, the days were, when the nations were divided or the lands were divided. That's like, a, you know, a bit of a spoiler alert for what's going to happen in the next chapter at the Tower of Babel. How did all of these nations uh, end up spread out uh, in this way? Verse 23 mentions Uz. That's where Job uh, was from. And so these are all of the descendants of Shem. Five sons, six grandsons, uh, 15 great uh, grandsons. Uh, a lot, but still less than Canaan. And so this is all of them. So these are the descendants of Shem uh, geographically. And this is how the descendants of Jem uh, overlaid with the descendants of uh, Ham and Japheth on the next slide. Uh, so that's the, this is how all of them got dispersed. Now, how did they get dispersed? They got dispersed because a bunch of people wanted to get together and build a tower to heaven. A bunch of people got together and wanted to be like God. Same characters, different actors. What did Adam want to do? Adam ate the fruit because he wanted to be like God. The whole reason why we're so spread apart. The same thing (laughs) that unites us as human beings is also the same thing that divides us and is the reason for our division. The thing that unites us is the fact that we're all... Creatures born in the image of God, and that we're all sinners. And that fact that we're all sinners is what we have in common, and that's also what divides us apart from one another. Same character, different role. And then you follow the rest of the biblical story. Same character, different role. Same character, different role. Until, sorry, same character, different actor. Same character, different actor. Until... One actor arrives on the stage, and this actor is the playwright, is the screenwriter, is the director. This, this particular actor plays the role perfectly. Like Adam, he's tempted, but he doesn't give in like noah he enjoys wine but doesn't get drunk he he turns water into wine he associates with tax collectors and sinners like noah but never sins himself and then this actor who plays the he plays the role perfectly Then what happens to him ends up is what should happen to the villain in the story. He ends up being crucified and killed for the sins of you and me. And this actor is born into a family. He happens to be a descendant of Shem, and he calls to him followers who are also descendants of Shem. Peter and Paul they were they were descendants of Shem. They were Hebrews, but. But before long, we start seeing descendants of Ham start following him. Lucius and Simon of Cyrene and the Ethiopian eunuch. So you've got the descendants of Shem, and then you've got the the descendants of Ham. And then you've got Cornelius. He's a descendant of Japheth. And you see all these nations that have been spread abroad because the one actor has come and played the role perfectly. Same role, new actor, perfect actor, brilliant performance is bringing everyone back together. And as I mentioned, we we have this repetition in the structure of this genealogy, the sons of, and then all of the names, and then repeated again and again, ways in which people are divided. They're divided by their lands and their languages and their clans. And then one day, loved ones, When the play finally ends, when the movie, the credits are just about to roll, maybe it's the end of the movie, maybe it's really just in Narnia, maybe it's just the beginning. All the descendants of Japheth, all the descendants of Shem, all the descendants of Ham, we are all going to gather, and this is what we're going to say. This is how he's being praised in heaven right now. This is what is said about the actor Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain this is revelation 5:9 for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God and notice this remember those genealogies mentioned tribe language people and nation amen So what I want to invite you uh, to do right now, we think about Noah and his shame. We think about Christ and what Christ accomplished to cover our shame and to cover our sin. We think about how divided our world is and how Christ has brought us together. What I want to ask you to do is I want you to stand up right now. And I want you to look around this room. I want you to look at the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Japheth and the descendants of Shem that you're going to be worshiping side by side. And we are going to praise our Savior. So let's get on our feet. It's kind of awkward to stare at people. You don't stare. Just look around this room right now. We're often looking forward at the screen or whatever. We're looking around the room and we're looking at what God has done. And we're gonna read these scriptures together uh, on uh, the screen. Let's read this together. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither slave, neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. I'm doing a bad job reading. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And let's read this together. As part of the family of God, Colossians 3, 9 to 11, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen, amen. Let's sing together.